Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. When children love learning, they can tackle any challenge life throws at them. Sylvan's insight assessment can help you determine if your child is ready for what's ahead. It can also identify gaps in learning and point out areas that could be of concern for your child so they can tackle what's to come. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. The mob assault on the U.S. Capitol is not just an issue for Americans. It is a huge issue, threatening the stability of a country that many live in, but it's also a blow, a shock to the entire global political system. Today on Worldly, part of the Vox Media Podcast Network, we are going to talk about what happened in Washington yesterday from two distinct angles. First, how the U.S. intelligence and policing apparatus could fail so terribly to anticipate a threat to the foundations of the government itself, and second, what it means for the world and for the U.S. role in it that such a thing could happen in America's capital. I'm Zach Beecham, your host back after a long paternity leave break. This is the most optimistic I can sound after the terrible events <laughs> of yesterday. I'm really happy to have a child. She's lovely. Uh, she's great. She, Congratulations, she started smiling. Zach. We're so Thanks, Zach. Jen Congrats. Williams. <laughs> Thanks, Jen Kirby. Alex is out on vacation, so Jen Kirby is graciously still guest hosting. Jen Kirby, thank you for everything you've done while I've been gone. It's been Amen. awesome to have uh, just such a, a capable and smart person filling in for me so I don't have to worry about it while I'm changing dirty diapers. It's, oh, well, it's, I was happy to do it, and I'm I'm glad that you had some time with uh, with Ellie, is it? Yeah, it's Ellie. Ellie. Eleanor is her, is her full name. And it's it's great. She started talking and babbling a little bit. And it's like she was trying to warn us that everything was going to hell. Like, listen. My future is under threat. Please <laughs> oh, go. <gosh>. Yeah. <laughs> I think she's concerned. So look, team, friends, worldly listeners, I'm so happy to be back with you. And that's going to end the fun part of the show, probably. Actually, correction. One quick thing I want to note uh, on my end. Uh, worldly listeners, you may hear some interesting bird peeps in the background of our show going forward because I, uh, over the holiday break, gifted my roommate with a 16-week-old cockatiel bird uh, who is very enthusiastic in the morning. And so uh, we're going to do our best to make sure that that doesn't end up being disruptive. But if you hear it, that's what's going on. It's a little bird named Albert in the background having a great time. Anyway. So, Back to use that. That's right. That's right. I forgot about the very, very important bird announcement in the fun portion yes. of the show. <laughs> yeah, look, this Critical. is... Critical. We, we, we need to laugh and let off steam a little bit because it's just, we're all sort of still in shock. And, and I personally woke up furious thinking about the events of yesterday. Um, there, there was one piece that I read that really stuck with me. Uh, two, actually. Uh, but they're on the same theme. One was written before the storming of the Capitol in, by NBC News, by some of their really good reporters who work on online extremism. Um, and they cited a report that there had been a tremendous number of threats 
made to commit violence during this protest if Trump were not somehow illegally crowned president by the U.S. legislature. This is a sort of one of those open source intelligence firms that looks at this thing, and they found a ton of threats from people on websites like the Donalds that are really popular with hardcore Trump users, QAnon supporters, Proud Boys, all of these various different extremist and militant groups that circle in the Trumpist orbit. And then there was a piece after uh, published in BuzzFeed that looked at these threats. Uh, some, I think it might have been the same report even they looked at, and they combed through the specific comments, and they found an actual threat to storm the Capitol, among various different other things. Like, it wasn't just that there were threat generalized threats to commit violence. It's that there were specific threats against the U.S. Capitol itself by people who claimed they would be attending this rally. And somehow, the Capitol Police and the, the greater infrastructure of the U.S. government, which seems dedicated sometimes almost entirely towards preventing terrorism uh, and, and security security threats internal and external, completely dropped the ball. And that, that's dropping the ball is such a severe understatement. They missed it. They let a mob take over the American legislature while it was trying to select the president. This has to be among the greatest intelligence and policing failures in American history, right, uh, Jen Williams? Yeah, so, you know, it, it comes to me that uh, after 9-11, we did the the big 9-11 commission report, right? We had this huge kind of government commission uh, bringing in experts to figure out like what happened and how we missed the attacks of September 11th, 2001. And there's a famous line in there um, that, you know, the system was blinking red. And what they meant was that, like, all the intelligence sources, all the information that you know the intelligence agencies had were screaming that there was a an attack that could be happening, but there wasn't specific information, right? There wasn't like, we know that X person is coming to do this. To me, what this was, it's not that the system was blinking red. It's that they the system was literally advertising it on like a marquee, you know, billboard in the center of Times Square. Like that's the kind of level of of public organization that was happening on social media. Um, and yes, some of this happened on, you know, more kind of fringe uh, platforms like Gab and Parler. But there are plenty of people who are on those platforms. Uh, there are people who specialize in this stuff. Like you said, there's this report. Um, I think that Shira Frankel in the New York Times uh, mentioned that like some of the this stuff they were talking about online literally included like directions on which streets to take to avoid the police and which tools to bring to help pry open doors. They talked about carrying guns. This is like a specific operation, essentially, uh, that was planned and organized online in essentially full view of anyone who bothered to look. And the fact that, you know, that information was out there and and fairly well known by anyone who bothered to look and that there was seemingly no serious effort made on the part of law enforcement, uh, you know, federal law enforcement or D.C. law enforcement to prevent against this is to me just staggering, given that, you know, this is the U.S. Capitol. Uh, it is, you know, in terms of like terrorism uh, and and threat profiles, you know, when people look at it, um, experts look at it, it it's a it's not particularly hard target, meaning it's not particularly well protected in the sense that like there are lots of entryways, there aren't like massive walls around it, right? Like it's meant so people can get in and out, they can meet with, you know, their members of Congress, their, you know, hundreds of staffers. So, you know, there, there are challenges, but 
there are also like police and federal forces and you know national guard who have been called out to protect things like the lincoln monument recently during you know some of the black lives matter protests over the summer we saw you know massive kind of national guard force you know standing in you know ranked rows on the steps of the lincoln memorial and that was you know not that that's not an important memorial to our country but it's also just stone and not human lives and like where the business of democracy was literally being undertaken by members of Congress. And so, yeah, Zach, I, absolutely. The fact that this was a massive intelligence failure, a massive failure in terms of planning and preparation and, and risk mitigation. Um, and I, I think there's going to be, uh, you know, we're already hearing lawmakers uh, calling for, you know, an inquiry into this. You know, I think we may potentially see something like a 9-11 commission, obviously not on the scale probably of that, but, you know, looking into like, what were the specific failures? How did this happen? And I don't know the answer quite yet. We know some answers, but the the underlying of like, literally, where did this break down? I think it's going to take a while to really figure out in detail. Jen Williams, you were just hinting at uh, there being some information out right now. Like what's, what's the state of play here in terms of like what limited crumbs we do have at the time that we're recording? That is to say, Thursday morning, Eastern Standard Time. Yeah. So the Washington Post uh, early this morning, late last night, uh, something like that, uh, did a what, really what great. What is time, really? Right. right. And we, I think we say that literally every episode now. But <laughs> so the Washington Post uh, did a really great report that came out, I think, early this morning, looking uh, at what we know and trying to kind of get to the bottom of this. And so the, the Capitol Police um, are not particularly well known for being responsive to reporters questions something that jen kirby actually discovered uh yesterday while you know being the the dogged reporter she is trying to reach out constantly to all the law enforcement agencies that were involved um and getting literally like radio silence uh no responses voicemail full voicemail full ah (laughs) yeah even better so they weren't even getting the the requests right um and so you know What the Washington Post kind of teased out from their sources um, is essentially a few things. So one, it looks like they just flat out didn't really expect this to happen. Um, Why? Again, I don't know why. We don't know what made them not, you know, I don't know if they didn't see reports like this. I mean, there was plenty of talk. There was warning, you know. It was a pretty well-known thing that this was coming. I think part of it also has to do with the fact that, you know, there's a lot of stuff happening, you know, in the world uh, and in the country uh, around that time. And so, you know, I know that even we in the media were kind of distracted by other things, but it's law enforcement's job. You know, it's not like they were reporting on the Georgia runoff elections. They Their job is to secure D.C., first of all. Um, you know, one of the other issues I think that we know here is in terms of uh, the military or the um the National Guard response. So previously, this is, I think, a huge factor. And I think it also, in some ways, has to do with the the D.C. police as well and the Capitol Police. Um, you guys may remember, listeners, back this summer uh, when there were Black Lives Matter protests outside the White House in Lafayette Square. And there was a massive kind of crackdown. President Trump wanted to do this photo op to walk to a nearby church and hold up a Bible, weirdly. And he wanted to essentially clear the Lafayette Square of all the protesters so that that wouldn't be interrupted. 
and federal law enforcement cleared the protesters out with super heavy-handed tactics, tear gas, you know, all of the kind of, you know, very aggressive kind of policing approach. And it was roundly criticized. The members of the military who were involved in, you know, making the National Guard kind of calls, uh, the federal law enforcement agencies that were involved there, it was a, it was a huge spectacle. There was a ton of criticism. And I think part of it is that we've heard so far is that they basically didn't want a repeat of that, and they were concerned about the optics of that. The military, the Pentagon was concerned about the optics of having, you know, armed uh, members of the military in uniform, you know, storming the Capitol, things like that. So they didn't essentially want to kind of have a massive, overwhelming police presence in that respect. So there's I, when, when you started talking there, I thought you were going to discuss a different weirdness about the National Guard, though that one's obviously significant, which is that after the mob attack began, right, it took a long time for there to be some kind of federal presidential level authorization for the National Guard to be deployed. And when it did come out, the report said that it was authorized by by Vice President Pence not President Trump, which is weird because typically when it comes to things like troop deployments, it's the president making the call. In fact, that is the president's job to make these final determinations on things that are this important. Uh, And that is not normal. And we still don't have any clarity on why Pence ended up issuing that order and not Trump, Uh, which is very disturbing, right? And it's disturbing because... Um, there's there's a really good set thing re- written recently on Twitter by Nanahal Singh, who's an expert on coups. So his academic work is on as a professor. Um, and one of the things that he said is that this is probably not a coup because it didn't involve the use of armed forces to try to topple the U.S. government and in the sort of the most technical understanding of what a coup means. But if it were the case that Trump deliberately prevented the National Guard from securing the Capitol because he wanted to stop uh, anyone from interfering with the attack on Congress to try to intimidate Congress into making him president again. Basically, he wanted the rioters to succeed in their aims. That is a coup attempt, right? That's how regimes have been toppled. Uh, And he, you know, Singh cites the Arab Spring as examples here. Militaries just stand aside and let crowds storm um, institutions of government in order to topple the regime. That's That's a kind of coup attempt where the military just by virtue of not acting takes a side in the conflict between the state and anti-state protesters. Uh, And that could have been what happened. We don't know. And that to me illustrates, and and then Jen Kirby, I want to get your thoughts on everything we've been discussing, illustrates the depths of the dysfunction in the U.S. national security, state, and political system that were on display yesterday. No, I mean, I think that's a, a really important point. I think we should be cautious here because we still, a lot of the reporting isn't totally clear yet on on the actual TikTok of what happened, and that will probably come out in the next weeks and days. I do think what's maybe different is, you know, it's not as if, you know, the president was ordering them not to do anything, You know, if that makes sense. In the, yeah, no, no, that does make a difference. Right, when it comes to the coup in like technical terms. But I think it is, I mean... I don't quite know if there's vocabulary to explain how unsettling it would be that the president of the United States could, you know, sit, watch cable news and not feel the need to take action when, you know, the United States government is essentially under attack. It is, again, it's hard. It's unprecedented. Well, duh. 
I mean, it's like, <laughs> it just feels like it doesn't quite meet the moment. And um, I do think, you know, what seems very clear, and I think we will probably get into this, particularly when we discuss what this means for the U.S.'s sort of position in the world. It is clear that Trump, he obviously encouraged them these supporters to go and do this. He rallied up this um, this crowd at earlier that day, told them to march to the Capitol. And so him being complicit in, again, an attack on the U.S. government, um, it doesn't really it's really hard to wrap your head around, I think, as as both a, a journalist and as an American citizen. Yeah, I think there are a few more factors uh, that are certainly at play here. Um, two in particular I want to highlight. One is the fact that D.C. is not a state. It is territory that is controlled by various different parties, right? So you have the D.C. mayor and you have the Metropolitan Police Department. You have D.C. Capitol Police who are literally there to protect members of Congress and their staffs in the Capitol complex. You have, you know, federal, local law enforcement kind of all together. So that was part of the issue, too, with the National Guard. It's not like the governor of D.C. could call out the National Guard. D.C. Mayor Mario Bowser basically has to request that the National Guard be sent in. She can't do it herself. Um, so there, there's that, right? There are a bunch of different kind of overlapping jurisdictions here uh, that I think in some ways may have made it difficult. But again, this is D.C. and they have a lot of experience doing things like this. There are massive rallies that happen all the time. There's inaugurations that happen all the time. So that brings me to the second point, which is I think there's something that we have to acknowledge, which is these protesters, rioters, you know, they became rioters, but when they're, you know, in the, the planning phase at least, you know, they're looking and there's this mass rally planned. There were mostly white people. Um, and I, I don't think it is an exaggeration or getting too far over my skis to say that that may have played a role in the sense of, well, I think it's pretty clear in terms of systemic racism, but, you know, looking at the way, you know, institutionalized law enforcement may look at threat profiles of groups, um, it's entirely possible that they may have just not seen this as the having the potential for the kind of violence uh, that they ended up actually perpetrating it again why they thought that given that there was all of this intelligence saying they're literally planning to do this I can't tell you but but I don't think we can move on without at least acknowledging that that was potentially played a role here no I think that's a critical point and it's not just one that is like a reflection of bias in the most obvious sense of just you know the way that the police operate in a biased fashion though that is clearly part of the discrepancy in use of force it's also as you know as you were just hinting at jen williams uh, a matter of institutional resource allocation like under the trump administration there has been a systematic deprioritization of concern about white supremacist violence even as that violence has eclipse jihadism as the clearest threat to uh, terrorist threat to the to the US homeland uh, through you know them actually killing people in much larger numbers and there's you know there's been evidence for that for a long time right there was this this report uh, it was written in in 2009 by by a Department of Homeland Security analyst arguing that there was a problem of right-wing extremism on the rise and he was pilloried especially by Republicans who thought he was trying to link them somehow or discredit them uh, to to by linking them to violent extremism but it, it turns out that the 
this guy was right. There was a massive risk of far-right violence in the United States, and one that our government just does not take as seriously as it takes organized 9-11 style plots from jihadist groups abroad, right? This is, that's, that's I think, part of the other problem, right, is that we talk about the 9-11 commission model and, and all the reforms that happened to the intelligence community after 9-11, but part of the problem here is fighting the last war, is that w- what we're looking for are people who organize these very sophisticated, very detailed plots to do something dramatic uh, that's like hijack an airplane and crash it into a building. But really, as we saw yesterday, if you have a large number of people, they don't even necessarily need guns, though a lot of these people obviously own guns. <laughs> Maybe most of them do. Uh, and there were also reports of pipe bombs uh, at the DNC and the RNC headquarters. The Democratic National Committee and Republican National Committee. Right. Basically, the headquarters of the party. They were mad at both of them for letting Biden become president. We think, anyway. That's the plausible explanation of why there would be pipe bombs. We we don't know who did it for sure yet. Uh, but the point is, like, these are all easy to do, lo- like, things that don't require you to, uh, you know, do a kind of detailed sort of thing that al-Qaeda did. Right. They just had some limited planning that was evident on public forums, but they weren't looking for that. I, it just it seems to me that we they weren't looking for that kind of organization uh, from these white nationalist groups. And also they were looking for a different kind of organization than what was on display yesterday. Yeah. It, you know, there was this it, it just in going to resource allocation. I think it's a critical point here. Um And it also goes to what literally happened on the ground, which is, you know, there were these scenes. There's this one video of the protesters, the rioters taking over the Capitol and they're storming in. And it's this very like kind of large room and they're trying to push through a very narrow kind of doorway into a hallway. And there is one single police officer with a baton who is trying to hold them back. And at one point, he doesn't even have his baton. It's on the ground behind him. And he's just holding out his hand, going, stop, stay back. And then he kind of gets pushed back a couple feet. And he's like, stop, stop. And it's this stunning moment. And then he kind of stops and runs back and grabs his baton and kind of runs back up at the protesters and starts kind of like swinging it. But he's not really hitting them. He's just kind of swinging it in the air, like threatening. But it was this staggering moment of just this perfect kind of encapsulation of the lack of resources that were dedicated to protecting the capital in this moment that there's this one guy and you know to his credit the the guy should be given a medal he you know stood up against this mob of rioters coming after him and tried his damnedest to hold them off um you know and i want to make that clear too it's i don't think it's the the fault here of the individual members of law enforcement who were on the ground trying to do this um there are some reports that some of them may have kind of stood by it and in some certain instances just let protesters go through whether that was because they wanted them to go through or whether because they just felt that they were overwhelmed in terms of numbers we don't know but um but there were also many officers who were out there valiantly trying to hold back these kind of mob uh, uh, hordes of of rioters storming the capital they were just massively outnumbered and horrifically overwhelmed quickly Yeah, it was a pretty startling scene from start to finish. And I will say to sort of the resource point, though, as we've talked in the show, it was in many ways unacceptable for law enforcement to be so unprepared. But it felt as if 
nobody ever mobilized to react either. I mean, after this violent mob had stormed the Capitol, interrupted the business of Congress, and, you know, invaded the offices of members of Congress, they were just sort of milling about the Capitol. Like, you know, just, it was like, what? It just felt like a total and complete vacuum of any sort of order. And it was really, really troubling to see. And to the point, you know, Zach was making before regarding, you know, the questions of the coup, let's, let us not forget that the president of the United States put out a video and said, I love you, go home. Whereas during the, um, you know, Black Lives Matter protests, he repeatedly tweeted about how destroying federal property was a federal crime and people would be punished to the fullest extent of the law. And so it really is quite the contrast to see um, even the morning after, you know, obviously law enforcement is investigating. The FBI is going to use a wealth of evidence from video documentation to track many of these people down. But um, it is really troubling sort of the, the lack of arrests and accountability that have happened, you know, less than 24 hours after the event. So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, and when we come back, we're going to talk about the more global angle on this. What does this mean for American foreign policy and the way that the world understands America's role in it more generally? Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey, instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's insight assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Welcome back, worldly listeners. We have been talking about what happened at the Capitol yesterday, primarily focusing on what this says about the uh, capability of American intelligence and policing services. Uh, but but now we're going to move on from this national security lens and talk about the way that the world is reacting to this. Because one thing that really struck me uh, was the way that foreign leaders were turning the tropes, uh, especially hostile foreign leaders, but not exclusively, the tropes of American foreign policy discourse against the United States yesterday. You know, the the Turkish government offered to mediate between the two sides. Uh, Venezuela called Venezuela called for moderation uh, by the by the U.S. government and, and factions within the United States. And an Israeli lawmaker. Uh, joked that the United States may have to invade the United States to restore democracy, right? It, it, there's there's something about American foreign policy that seemed premised on the idea that the United States had some degree of moral authority over the world by virtue of what its political system was. And this is a really consistent argument throughout modern American foreign policy discourse and arguably even before it. 
Jen Kirby, what happens to that perception after there's basically an insurrection against democracy by by American people? (laughs) I mean, I don't know what foreign leaders will actually think about this, uh, particularly as the weeks and months go on. And certainly we know what they've said publicly. You know, they express support for U.S. democracy and the peaceful transfer of power. Whatever is going on behind closed doors is another story. But I think, you know, we talked I've talked on the show a lot about how Trump has really shaken some of the faith in U.S. democracy and, you know, the perception of the U.S. abroad. And I think if there was any there was a lot of hope, I think, after Joe Biden won the election that perhaps, you know, America's reputation or America's uh, consistency could be somewhat rebuilt. And I think that is going to be close to too impossible to achieve now, at least where we stand in the current moment. And I say this because last night, obviously, after this this assault, the Senate went about its business to try to certify the election results. And they did. Joe Biden will be sworn in as president on January 20th. But the tone in the Senate chamber was it was truly bizarre world. People were going back to their stump speeches. They were you know, talking about anecdotes about, you know, American exceptionalism. And it's like, what is happening? I mean, I just was, I couldn't, I, it was so chilling in a way to see the scenes of what happened hours before and have people talk about, you know, the peaceful transfer of power 1801. It's like, did you just see what happened a few hours ago? There's this desire to go back in history and say, because we did it before, we can always keep doing it again. And I think, you know, where it stands now, there were still senators that continued to object to the results and did not cop to the lie that they have fomented. And right now, Trump is not being held accountable. He's not being held accountable by Congress or his, you know, the the members of his cabinet. You know, Facebook and Twitter are not the heroes of the, you know, downfall of American democracy, but they did more in the past 24 hours to restrain Trump than, than, than co-equal branches of government. And so I don't know if the United States can claim, as it has for many, many years, to actually have a peaceful transfer of power. I believe what happened yesterday has kind of made that impossible to claim, and I do not know how the U.S. can go abroad and, and say otherwise. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there are very specific examples. You know, Zach, you mentioned Venezuela um, of the actual tangible consequences this could have. So that statement, you know, from the Venezuelan government was really remarkable because if you remember, and we've we've covered it on the show before, the situation in Venezuela is essentially Maduro, Nicolas Maduro, refusing to leave power, refusing to step down after credible allegations of election fraud, uh, saying that he rigged the election and that therefore, you know, for a long time, opposition leader and, you know, the Speaker of Parliament, Juan Guaido, under the Venezuelan Constitution, was therefore the rightful legal president in the interim. Maduro refused to leave. To this day, he's still, you know, in the presidential palace. Maduro is still very much has a grip on the country. The Trump administration took huge, you know, effort, sanctions, pressure, all sorts of things to try to force Maduro to to leave. And a lot of that was saying, you know, you have to respect your constitution. You have to respect the rule of law. You need to step down. You are not the rightful president. And the fact 
that the current president of the United States is, you know, has been for weeks now refusing to concede an election that he clearly lost and that he, you know, even worse, fomented an actual insurrection against his own government because of these lies. That is a huge blow to our credibility, not just in Venezuela, but all over the place. When we, you know, the State Department calls on countries abroad from, you know, Asia to South America to Africa to elsewhere and says, you know, dear leader who is doing something and who is refusing to have a peaceful transfer of power, you need to respect that. All they have to do now is say, why? You guys don't. And they have a point, right? Which, again, it doesn't excuse, you know, just because someone does it doesn't mean you should do it too, right? Pretty obvious. But, you know, we saw also the Global Times, which is the Chinese state-affiliated news outlet, um, using this to basically justify their actions in Hong Kong and cracking down on, on, you know, protesters in Hong Kong. Uh, There was a tweet just this morning uh, from Global Times saying that there were no deaths during months of social turmoil in Hong Kong, but that four people had died during just a few hours of rioting on Capitol Hill, uh, quote, leaving Chinese netizens wondering how the West could accuse Hong Kong police of brutality. First of all, that's a lie. People did die during the the clashes in Hong Kong. Um, But it just goes to show that, like, this gives you know, foreign adversaries who are engaging in clearly anti-democratic behavior, really good diplomatic cover for their actions and the ability to point right back at the United States and say, you have no moral standing. And that is a, a really damaging blow to all of our foreign efforts to actually promote democracy. Um, you know, one last thing I want to mention there was a lot of talk from from people on social media as this was unfolding, saying, you know, we're not used to seeing this in the United States. This is the kind of thing, you know, we're used to seeing in in the Middle East or wherever, fill in the blank of whichever region you pick. Um, and there's a lot of anger that people were saying this, right? Which is like, America, face yourself. This is this is not just something that happens in in these countries. Um, but there's a huge thing that I think a lot of people miss, which is that most of those other cases in a lot of the cases where you do see protesters storming government buildings in other countries they are fighting for democracy they are fighting for the the right to have free speech and democratic government in our case it was the literal opposite which is just astounding to me astounding i am um, uh, not only is that an excellent point, Jen. And I, I hope everybody, if you remember one thing from this conversation, remember the difference in parallels there. Uh, but I also want to zoom out a little bit and talk about not just the um, U.S. enemy propaganda sort of thing, which can feel a little abstract to me, right? So China has a good argument against the United States. Like, what is what are the consequences of that? And I want to talk a little bit about what this does to countries that may not be necessarily hostile. And this may sound abstract at first, but I promise it, it circles back, right? So in the in the 2000s, around the time of the Iraq War, when everyone was really mad at the United States for deciding to invade a country for essentially no good reason, there was a lot of conversation among IR experts about this, this concept called uh, balancing, which is that people would be so concerned about the breadth of American military dominance globally that other countries around the world would start to organize 
efforts to resist America's influence abroad, militarily, politically, etc. That there would be, there was just so much concern about the U.S. throwing its weight around that there would be some kind of reaction. Now that didn't happen very clearly, right? There was just not a lot of good evidence of balancing happening as a result of American military overreach, but. What we are seeing now is is not quite balancing, but something similar, right? Like, we, we have a U.S.-led world system, right? The United States is the world's most powerful country. It runs an alliance, functionally speaking, of democratic nuclear powers in NATO. Not every country in NATO has nukes, obviously, but it, it's like it's by far the most powerful military force when united together on the world. And the U.S., of course, on its own is the most powerful military force by an order of magnitude. The U.S. is the world's global reserve currency and on and on down the list, right? There's so many different ways in which the global system still depends on the United States. And no one was concerned about American strength there, but it seems like they might be concerned about a kind of American weakness. And by that, I don't mean uh, the way that neoconservatives use it when they're like, well, America's not intervening forcefully enough in all these countries, so everybody's going to think we're weak and we need to throw our weight around to show that we are very strong. No, it's not like that. What it is like is that the United States is racked by internal instability right now. Right. And how if you're Germany, if you're uh, Britain, hell, if you're uh, Israel or or insert any other American friendly government in in East Asia or uh, sub-Saharan Africa, right, where, where you sort of have military links to the U.S. or you depend in some way on the United States providing some kind of global public good like freedom of navigation in the seas, uh, How do you base your entire national security strategy on the United States playing that role anymore when it's possible that the U.S. is so riven by its own internal disagreements that it can't play the role that it plays anymore? We don't have the bandwidth to deal with foreign crises right now. There is no way the U.S. government would be capable of an effective, unified, and and swift response to some kind of crisis in another part of the world. And if people think this is going to get worse, not better, or at least you have a degree of uncertainty about that as a foreign leader, you're sitting in some capital and you're like, well, what should I do? Like Maybe you do start to kind of balance it. Right, you start thinking about what you need to do to secure the things that make your country prosperous, safe, happy, uh, in a world where the U.S. doesn't exercise the leadership role that it has in the past. So I think you could see concrete policy changes resulting from not, I mean, obviously it's not just the chaos in Capitol Hill, but that underscores the need to act that the Trump years have generally galvanized in, in uh, foreign, foreign capitals. Yeah, I think that's a really really important point, Zach, because as I was saying before, you know, Trump has already shaken faith in the U.S. system and its reliability. And now it would be hard to imagine, given where we are right now, how we kind of quickly move past this and that this doesn't, the actual events that have led to this moment um, are going to restrain the U.S.'s, I think, capabilities abroad. Um, And I believe that, you know, our allies and even other, as you said, other countries that rely on us are going to maybe rethink the relationship. What that means in the long term, I think, is still really unclear. But I do think, too, you know, speaking to like this idea that it, it couldn't happen here and the perceptions of the world, uh, there's a really um, an incredible report by ITV. It is offers incredible footage and it 
is basically following these Trump supporters as they're streaming into the Capitol. And the reporter is, is talking to these people. And they believe with a fervent, fervent passion that the election has been stolen. And you see, and it's, you know, narrated from an outsider's point of view. Right, because ITV is a British programmer, right? Right, correct. I'm sorry, I should have said that up top. You see what American people, American voters believe. And if you're looking at that from abroad, you're thinking, how is it possible that this, that this can, you know, that this country can just move on, that Joe Biden could be sworn in on January 20th and that things will will proceed. Um, so I think there's the world is really at a crossroads. And, you know, as as someone who covers foreign affairs and, you know, deals a lot with foreign officials on statements and, and you know, things like that, you know, getting uh, emails from embassy officials saying, like, hope you're safe and hope you're OK. It was so startling and you know as we original planned in the episode was to talk about hong kong and the mass arrest there and um one of one of the lawmakers who had been arrested um her name is claudia mo she was a she's a former lawmaker she had resigned last year and i had checked in i'd spoken to her before on vox and so i checked in with her staff member to just see what her status was and she emailed me back late last night saying you know we're trying to do okay we haven't heard from Claudia, she's been in the police station. And then she says, you know, I know there's unrest there, you know, unrest or problems there too. I hope you stay safe. And as Jen was talking before, yes, it is the people in Hong Kong are protesting for democracy. The people in the U.S. are protesting against it. But you see today that Pompeo is talking about sanctioning the people who are going to, um, you know, who, who are in charge of the mass arrests in Hong Kong. You're saying, how is this possible that we are not dealing with the crisis here at home and still acting as if we can pretend that we can do business as usual abroad? It is truly, it is hard to wrap, it's hard for me to wrap my head around right now. There's one final point, and I absolutely agree with everything that you just said. Just one final point I kind of want to make here, um, and not to get too dire, but I want to take it even one step further and beyond just U.S. efforts to you know promote democracy to to the actual viability long-term of democracy itself. When I was in China uh, a few years ago on a reporting trip, uh, I met with members of the Chinese foreign ministry, basically their state department, and I was struck, this was right after Trump had been elected, and they kept saying over and over, I can't believe, you know, this is what democracy gets you, that you were able to elect someone like Donald Trump. This is why democracy is bad. It's unstable. That is an argument that China in particular, but also we saw comments like this from Iran's leaders yesterday. This is the problem, the weakness of Western democracy. And the idea that, you know, democracy is not something that is is guaranteed, right? It's not something that is, you know, is just the automatic assumption that it's right and good for many people around the world and, and many governments, obviously, as we've been talking, push back against it and, and don't want to have democracy. And one of the key arguments that China in particular, but others make, is that democracy is messy, that you need to have one person. You see Putin in Russia make the same argument that you need to have a strong leader in charge for a long period of time in order to have stability. Otherwise, you end up with chaos and violence and instability. I obviously fundamentally disagree with that because I am a big supporter and proponent of democracy. 
But what just happened in the United States is a huge weapon in that arsenal that we just gave those leaders pushing against democracy. Because all they have to do is say, look what democracy gets you. It gets you rioting and overthrowing governments and chaos in the streets and bloodshed. You don't want that. Stick with us. We'll protect you and keep everything nice and stable. And that is a terrifying development for the long-term prosperity of democracy worldwide. On that, uh, I think, perfectly appropriate downer note, we're, we're going to leave you. Uh, I want to thank our new producer, Sophie Lalonde. Sophie, did I pronounce your last name right? Oh, wait, I, she's not recording right now. She's giving me a thumbs up on our Zoom. But uh, yeah, we're, we're really, really excited to have Sophie on the team right now. She's going to do a great job. Hopefully we can continue bringing you a, a, a great show for the rest of this year. And, and hopefully future episodes won't be taking place amidst the backdrop of something as serious and, and horrible as what happened here. And I, so, we, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just I'm happy to be back. I'm happy to be talking with you guys and be back in your lives. And I want to encourage all of you to do as, as I hope you've already done. Rate, subscribe, and review Worldly wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks a lot. And we will talk to you next week.